Welcome. I'm Warren Odess Gillette, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. Welcome to A Baha'i Perspective. I recorded an interview with Carolyn Cruikshank on October 19, 2021. Carolyn and her husband Don started a camp in Vermont in the 60s to have kids from diverse backgrounds and from both privileged and underserved communities come together and learn outdoor living skills together. The camp was called High Rise. They later created the Institute of Human Understanding to facilitate their work overseas. Carolyn talks about their work in Nicaragua to help a remote indigenous community to be represented in Baha'i administration. She also describes the remarkable work that was done in Honduras for the education and upliftment of girls. I started the interview by asking Carolyn where she grew up and what was religious life like growing up. Well, I grew up in Massachusetts. I went to Sunday school every Sunday, you know, and Easter was the big thing that your mother made you a whole new outfit and Easter was wearing new clothes to church. (laughs) But I don't remember that I enjoyed it, you know. I didn't find that it was fun or interesting. And we were in Danvers was the first church I went to. And then we moved to the country a little further out and there was only one Protestant church, and one Catholic church. And I can remember when we were in Danvers that, why did we go to this one and other people go to others? And I thought, maybe it's because it's closest to your neighborhood. You know, I just couldn't understand why there had to be so many of them. And then uh, when we went to Tossfield, it was only one and, and the Catholic church. And then I discovered that I had friends who went to the Catholic church and I went to the Protestant church, and there was this feeling like each one was better than the other. I couldn't understand that. If you all love Christ, you know, if that's who you're learning about, why is one better than the other? And then when I got older, I developed some programs in the church. I thought it would be helpful to have a nursery school so people could come and leave their children and babies with me so they could go to the service. And I started getting little classes together, and I didn't like the materials, you know. It was too segregated, even though it was just, it was congregational. Anyway, so I went looking for other kinds of materials that took in everybody and made everybody feel like they were one, you know. That was just some kind of feeling that I've always had. That's pretty much was your attitude toward religion growing up? Yes, except now there was one special thing about this. The Sunday school teacher that I'd had in Tavisfield was um, also the organist or something during church. I just thought she was wonderful, and she really favored me for some reason or other. She had a car that had a rumble seat in the back, and I was the only one allowed to ride in it. (laughs) If I walked to school, I went by her house, and she said to always stop in, and she was teaching me to play the piano and sing and do all these things. And then when I was about 10, she adopted a child, 
and she asked me if I would come and take care of that while she cleaned the house and play with this little infant. She was a toddler at the time. And Mrs. Carter was cleaning the house, and I saw this ring left on the mantel, and everything was so neat that I said, Mrs. Carter, do you want to put this boy in a jewelry box? And she said, oh, that belonged to my aunt. She was a Baha'i. She said, read what it says. Well, it was so tiny I couldn't, but that's the first time I heard the word Baha'i. And I never forgot it for some reason or other. Lo and behold, later on, she did become a Baha'i. It seems as if all my life had been little stepping stones that would lead me to it. That was one, but even before that, I lived on a block in Danvers, and there wasn't another boy on the block. It was just my brother and my cousins and the boy next door and another boy on the, down the street. And we rode, we stayed on the block because it was safer. You know, you didn't cross streets and do things when you were little. And I could ride my bike as fast as they could. I could do anything. They, I kept up with them all the time. They were my buddies, you know. And then one day, one weekend, my father said he was going to take the boys to a, a ball game of some kind. And of course, I thought I was going to go. No, he said, this is for boys. And I thought, what? why can't I go? You know, just because I'm a girl, I can't go. I do everything else with the boys. Why can't I go to the ball game? I can remember when they drove away that I was just sitting, resting on the window sill, looking at them, watching them go, and thinking an awful lot about why can't, aren't girls just as good as boys. So that was another the stepping stone for my becoming a Baha'i. And then there were other things like we went into Boston to go to the dentist and we'd go to the Boston Gardens to go on the swan boats and have lunch and whatnot. And I saw all these people who looked different from me, you know, different colors, oh, dark skin and curly, curly hair and, and then Asian people, you know, and I wanted to run up and play with them and talk to them and my mother's dragging me around, you know. But I had a great curiosity and love for the different people, different looking people. I ended up becoming a portrait artist somewhat, being in the Girl Scouts and going to camp every summer and meeting people and sleeping in tents with them together and sitting around the campfire and singing and doing things. And I loved that. I just loved it. I just thought that we should all be together. But to have us different religions, that really upset me. And also another thing that really affected my life, when we lived on the block and I could ride my tricycle, somebody on the street built a little, had a little building for selling newspapers and candy and cigarettes. And wow, I could ride my bike and go shopping all by myself. And I got a nickel from my grandfather and rode down and I wanted to buy something that I could eat, but I wanted some pictures too. And so they had these little gum with picture cards that later became baseball cards, you know. So that's what I bought. And I opened it up and the pictures were war, were people's skeletons on the street, on the roads, leaves all gone from the trees. 
bodies of dogs that had been eaten and just the bones left. And it, they were horrible pictures, if you could imagine it being something that children would buy. Anyway, I could draw them in my mind today. They left such an impression. I went home and I said to my mother, what is this? And she said, war. That word, to have it be the answer to what those horrible pictures were, made me immediately, I hated war and I didn't want it to ever be again, because it did in my lifetime. The Second World War started when I was still young and a teenager and seeing the pictures and things that were in Life magazine, what was happening to Jewish people were unbelievable to me. And these are people who believe in God. Where is this God to save us? Please, you know, what's happening to the world? The other thing, when I started to learn to read, and I came home and Dad had the newspaper up and I saw this big headline, kidnapped and I was trying to sound it out and what's that big word daddy and he told me kidnapped the horrible kidnapping if who was the flyer oh, Charles Lindbergh. Lindbergh. yeah yeah and his child had been somebody had broken in and stolen right out of the bed and I thought how can people do these things also I grew up in a family that was my father was always doing things to make things better he had been in an army hospital unit in the First World War. And I can imagine, you know, he's an ambulance driver, what on earth, he, he never wanted to talk about it. But he was active and he started a Boy Scouts camp and a troop right in our little hometown. And so there was a summer camp built on a little pond and he did things for the American Legion. He was the commander or something and there was always a, Halloween party in town and a different things, a Christmas party and things. And he was always organizing these things for people to do things together and be happy, and mostly with children and families. So I guess that started me on my way, really. My father worked, started a friend in, with a business going, and the friend had a daughter, only one child, whereas I came in a multiple family. She was favored, you know, to have her father bought her a brand new car when she was only in high school, a Ford convertible. And Peggy, that was quite a tool, you know, to go around and make friends with people. And boys all wanted to drive her car, so she made lots of boyfriends, not in our hometown, but she did in a neighboring town. And it was well known that Peggy used to go to this other town and the boys wanted to drive her car. You know, was, those little rumors come around. So one night her father and my father were having a meeting and she called up and she said, come down and when our dads are coming down, come on down with them and we'll sleep out in the guest house, which was a little cabin out back that just had a fireplace. So her friend Gloria was coming and I loved Gloria. So we, I went down. And she said, how do you want to go out for a ride in my car? <laughs> and I had never been in it. It was the Christmas holiday, vacation from school. So we went for a ride, I thought, around town, and she started riding off towards Ipswich. I said, uh-oh, <laughs> why are we going to Ipswich? She wants to show us her boy collection or something, I guess. Well, the summer before that, I was at, sent to a Girl Scout leadership training camp. 
I'm now a senior in high school. And in the camp, in the my cabin with me was a girl from Ipswich. We became friends. She'd read letters that came from home. And one was her classmate, Bill Cruikshank. And in his letter, he told about his brother, Don, being in the Air Force. So I remember hearing that in a letter, that's all. I didn't forget the name Don, and I didn't forget the word Baha'i. And you're saying that two words you remembered clearly was Baha'i when you were... Uh... And then remembering Don's name stayed in my head with the Crookshank. It was interesting, when we moved to Tufsfield, I then was in the second grade and the third grade was in the same room, being a small town. There was a boy in the other third grade class whose name was Robert Crookshank, and I thought, wow, what a long name that is. And I thought, I've got to learn to spell that. So I did, and he was also rode the same bus that I was on to go to school. All right, so we're coming into Ipswich, and, and I see this figure walking down the street. It's getting dark. It's a young man alone walking on the street, and I, on a for some reason, I'm sitting in the middle, and I just nudge Peggy and said, Oh, Peggy, there's Don Crookshank, thinking if you're looking for Bill, <laughs> how about Don, who's in the Air Force? You know, I don't even know why or how it just came out of my mouth. And she pulled the car over and said, Oh, Don, would you like a ride home? I suppose she figured I knew him. I don't know. And I thought, Wow. She knows him, you know, what is, he comes over to the car and he said, oh, thanks, he would. And he gets in the back of the car, in the back seat, and that's a little seat back there in those 47 cars. She knew just where he lived and took him up to the house and he invited us in. Good grief, what's going on here? And he said he'd go ahead and get the back door lit up. Peggy says when we get out, now don't talk about religion because his mother worships idols. Anyway, we went in, and there was only this elderly gentleman sitting in the living room who was a friend of the family. It turned out that this man was John Crowley, who had met Abdu'l-Bahá, the son of Baha'u'lláh, in Boston when he was here in the United States. He said, you remind me of my wife, and he was going to show me her picture. And she is somebody who had passed away when they'd only been married 10 years. And I got up because he was an elderly gentleman to go over and look at the picture in his pocket watch. While I'm there, I said, this is a very lovely, interesting evening, but my father thinks we just went right around town and here we are in another town visiting in a house. I think, thank you very much, but we better head home. And he stood up and then Don stood up. And Don, the whole time we were there, never made any remarks or joke or laughed about anything that was said, trying to impress us in any way whatsoever. And then Don stood up and Mr. Crowley said, my dear, you're going to marry a very dear friend of mine. And he pointed to Don. That was one of the most embarrassing moments I ever had in my life. You know, I couldn't raise my eyes from his finger. It was so embarrassing. I couldn't get out of there fast enough. You know, it's just just more than I could handle. That's how Don and I met. And I couldn't sleep that night. I kept the fire going in the cabin with the wood 
because I thought that man had something else to tell me, not just who I was going to marry. He had something else to share with me. Eventually, because Don was being discharged, he was only home a while and then gone, and then home a while three or four times before the actual discharge. And he did ask if he could see me again, and I didn't say no. He took me to meet his mother, and she gave me a little pamphlet about the Baha'i faith. And by now, I'm in my first year of college. I asked her when I saw it and read the basic features of the Baha'i faith, quality of men and women, of course, you know, elimination of all prejudice, of course. This, I said, this is everything I ever dreamed that religion should be. And I said, here it is. You mean it actually is? I asked her if, as Don's mother, she was a Baha'i. Don was not a Baha'i. Then he had been off in boarding schools and, and the service and whatnot. And she wrote things about it in letters, but he really wanted to hear about what was happening at home. And all the basic feelings he had naturally. He just felt that way naturally, you know. I think maybe I did too. And I think that's what tied us together was I I was sick of having friends that were constantly making unkind remarks about somebody who was different and all the bad words that people can think of to call others. I asked her to give a talk, and that was the first fireside she ever gave. And the fireside is? A fireside Mm -hmm. is when you come together and sit down and listen and share about a certain subject. Don's mother had grown up in her whole life having these happen because her father was the doctor of the town and he used to plan these little meetings and I don't know that they called them fireside but she referred to them and it was every Friday night. So when she became a Baha'i herself, she wanted to do the same thing. And so many people were used to coming to the family for her father for things that might be an artist who comes to speak or, you know, somebody else who would travel somewhere and share what they could to enlighten somebody's life and have a lovely gathering together, social gathering. And she had many of them at the house. By the time I'd been through a whole week of college classes, the last thing either of us wanted to do was sit and talk and listen, but we did meet people. There's a couple from Springfield and said they had, every Wednesday night, they had a fireside and invited us to come to theirs. Eventually we did. I've wanted to be a Baha'i, but I never said, can I be one? I was waiting to be invited, I think. And finally, they asked if I would like to be a Baha'i. And I said, you mean I'm allowed to be? I was working as a first grade teacher at that time. And we declared together, January 3rd, 1949. That was how we started our life off. I'm speaking with Carolyn Cruikshank, who was the co-director of High Rise, the Institute of Human Understanding and was involved in the Honduran Girls Education Project, sponsored by the Vermont and Honduras chapters of Partners of the Americas. And we had just listened to Carolyn's remembrance of her growing up and becoming a Baha'i and meeting her husband. Carolyn, I understand 
you were the co-director for HiRISE, the Institute of Human Understanding. What inspired you to create HiRISE, and what was its mission? Don and I sat and talked and deciding what we'd do with our lives, and both of us felt very strongly about building peace and world unity. We knew that if you didn't start with people at an impressionable age before they start forming all these misunderstandings and anger and frustration and whatever it is, if you start at a young impressionable age in their lives, so it's a part of their growing up and the way they feel, and you couldn't do it in a classroom, having a real living and learning experience is what you need. So we decided that the best thing would be to have a camp. Don's family had land in Vermont, and we were going to inherit it. The house was all fallen down, and it was 100 acres of land, but it was up on the mountain in a beautiful spot. And we thought to start a, a camping program there and have the children as great as diversity as we could to come together and live and learn to survive in the woods and solve their problems together, learn how to fix their own food and build a fire and all the challenges of being a place that's strange to all of them. So they have to build a new home. We had the dream in 1948. It was 1963 before we got there and did it. And by then we had our own four children. We were both teachers, so we always had the summers free, so it would work out that you could do something like this. And I was teaching in a very exclusive private school with Morgans and Cabots and Lodges and <laughs> Vanderbilts. And when I left to go start the camp in 1963, some of those families wanted to send their children because we had built up a good relationship with the school. I think if they had seen the place where they were going, <laughs> and who they were going to have their children sleeping with. I don't know whether they were, but they were pretty excited about wanting to be a part of it. So that first year that we started the camp in 1963, there were two little inner-city boys from Boston who grew up in an all-black neighborhood and were black themselves and didn't have very good feelings about being out of that neighborhood. Also was... J.B. Morgan's great-grandson <laughs> was also part of that group. We wanted the extremes of economics as well as culture and religion. We wanted as great a diversity as we could to bring them together and realize they could be one family and care for each other. We started with nine boys, and they wanted to call themselves the Green Mountain Boys. <laughs> Green Mountain Boys Camp is what they called it. And then the next year, we started with some girls, and they wanted to call themselves the North Hollow Encampment for Girls, because this part of the Rochester was called the North Hollow. And then it occurred to me, and I thought, high rise. You know, we're on the side of a mountain. It rises up, and what we want to do is to have the spirits of the children rise high. And Don said, yes, and the symbol will be an eagle. He spreads his wing and he soars on invisible currents of air above all the things that divide people. And that's what we want the children to feel like. Rise up their spirits to see the oneness of humanity. There were some interesting bonds 
I mean, we had children from other countries, and that's why we formed the Institute as a nonprofit, because we relied on people contributing. We had no money. We cashed in our savings and figured we could find and replace it, but we never did. I spent 80% of my time just raising the funds to get the children from other countries and other places to build the diversity that we wanted and yet have the economic, not all the children from Honduras to be poor, but to have some have funds, have well to do. So they would come together and realize there, even within their own country, that they have walls to overcome. It turned out to be extremely successful that we immediately joined the American Camping Association because they have such high standards for safety and and quality of the program and that you could then assure the parents that they were being carefully and well cared for. They were very taken with the program, the American Camping Association, and every convention they had, they would invite us to come and give a talk about how we did the camp, trying to bring people together, the diversity. Incidentally, when we needed to have the funds, we thought about applying for a grant from a foundation to help us. And we ended up at the final table for one of them and they said, now who are you emulating? And we said, nobody that we know of. And they said, well, we could give you funds if you want to go down south and do things with black people or if you want to go out and do things with a reservation, but don't bring them together. And I was in shock, absolutely in shock. What are these foundations for if they aren't for building new programs and raise up mankind to another level? in some way, whether it's agriculture or education or whatever. Anyway, so then I said, okay, Don, I think the only way we're going to do this, we're going to find people who care. And that turned out to be the best thing to do. And we found people who would sponsor the children. And we had the children and the sponsor become friends through mail, through little pictures and letters. And that in itself was wonderful, it was spreading the teaching even further to have people know this little Navajo boy or a little Mohawk girl or somebody, you know, that they were in touch with and then they wanted to know more about them. And of course, in their letters, they'd share little things about their family or something. So it was very uniting. It was turned out to be extremely successful. The American Camping Association has branches all over the United States and they have New England sector and the Southern sector, you know, and they, we also belong to the New England sector and the Vermont sector. And one year they decided to nominate us for a special award that's only given every five years and the national accepted it. By now we're, we have the nonprofit and we had a board of advisors for the nonprofit as well as the executive board because we were focused on the oneness of mankind, which is the basic teaching of the Baha'i faith. Our badge that the children all had and wore sewn on their shirt 
it's a world with an eagle flying over it and around it says the earth is one country and mankind its citizens and that was what the whole focus was so we're all the citizens to take care of our earth home no matter where so i'm speaking with carolyn crookshank who was the co-director for high rise the institute of human understanding and was involved in the Honduran Girls Education Project sponsored by the Vermont and Honduras chapters of Partners of the Americas. And so Carolyn was talking about how High Rise came into being. Carolyn, how did you get involved with the Honduran Girls Education Project? Because we were so broke, Don ended up having to take a job. He got a job. There was an opening with the state of Vermont for the emergency management office. And he had a very strong background in science and had done a lot when he was a science teacher. He got a job with the state. Partners of America is the largest nonprofit organization in the United States. It began shortly after Kennedy's assassination. He had a program that brought businesses, helping businesses in the this North and South Hemisphere. People really liked that, so they picked up on starting the Partners of the Americas, which has nothing to do with the government, or it is affiliated, it's a totally separate organization of its own. And Vermont became a partner with Honduras. Well, they were doing things to help agriculture, uh, but there was a real need for help with emergency management in Honduras. And they had approached the office and nobody wanted to go, but Don said, good grief, I'll go. And so it was to go down and help find out what their needs were and help them solve their problems themselves with flooding and hurricanes. And it involved the Red Cross, it involved schools and I went with him, but I paid my way because partners were paying his way. I wanted to go too. You see, before this happened, we had been down into Nicaragua, the National Spiritual Assembly of Nicaragua. Is that a Baha'i institution? Yes, that's a national institution of the administration of the Baha'i faith in any country is their National Spiritual Assembly. Nine people are elected from the Baha'i population of the country, and they desperately needed help on the West Coast in the Mesquitia area, where there's an indigenous population. And they spoke a Creole English, so we were able to communicate. They had once been an English settlement until the Spanish took over. And they longed to have this English settlement come back because they were so abused by the Spanish government. Slaves had been dumped off there, and a lot of them had mixed and lived in that, so they were part black African and part indigenous. It was a wonderful group of people, but they were all in these little villages off in the jungle, and they had no communication with the national. There was no way unless somebody went there, and so they asked us if we would go there because... They thought we could survive and do it. And they had had young people go down who had no knowledge of living in such poor conditions and easily got sick and had to leave. And our goal, they wanted us, was to find all the Baha'is in their villages and 
teach them about the administration and how you consult and vote, and then they could send a representative to the national, which they'd never had before. So that was what our assignment was. But none of the members of the national had ever been there. They had no idea what it was going to be like physically, and we had no map. We had a compasses, and we knew how to get along without clocks and radios and things like that from our own experiences with the children at Tyrus. So Don was very interested about going down and helping because we had had the experience in Central America already and were very anxious to do more helping in other Central American countries or wherever. And part of this was that Don had to go down there and he also had to go to Guatemala and El Salvador and a little bit of Honduras, you know, as part of this emergency management. He was trying to get them to all work together and help each other. Because I was interested in children and I said, I want to go down and see if we can connect schools between Vermont and Honduras because the partners were all professors and older people and I thought, so what's going to happen when we all retire? Who's going to keep things going if we don't start nurturing younger people to be interested in the partners? And then Vermont was very well known for its Green Up Day and Honduras was covered with plastic bags floating around everywhere in the wind and I thought, gee, to have schools sharing their Green Up Day and see if they can start doing Green Up down in Honduras. I figured if all the bags and they were cut in strips and they could carve out a little crochet hook, they could make an industry out of it by making rugs so that when they wash themselves off and standing on a mud, that they could have a mat to stand on and not be standing in mud when they throw water on themselves. Didn't all go over very well because some of the partners were so busy with their own projects and I couldn't stay down there. I was only there for 10 days at a time. At that time, the heart partners would send you for 10 days. The school year was different. The language was different. You know, you get a teacher interested, and then she gets another class, or the class is interested, and they get another teacher. You know, it needed a lot of support in Honduras, and it didn't get it enough to have it last. John Chater, who was a Vermonter who ended up living in Honduras, and we used to stay with him and his Honduran wife when we were there. He had friends, of course, and one was who was head of the USAID Caps Hops program there in Honduras, Jeff Lansdale. And Jeff had, through the Caps Hops program, teachers who are very poor and haven't had much education could receive some courses or the Caps Hops would send them off to get some additional education. And one of them came back and told Jeff, if only one poor girl in every village school who was bright could be helped to stay in school through the ninth grade, it would transform the country. And Jeff agreed with that, you know, then he mentioned it to John, I guess, and John said, I know just the person you need to help. You know, Carolyn Crookshank, she wants to work with children down here. Ask her to help with it. And of course, I'm being a Baha'i and how I feel about the equality of men and women. So I found things that had been written about the equality of men and women, and I put it in my answer, and I said, these are the 
conditions, you know, that I would be interested in doing it. This is what I believe. And if I did it, I would want to, this is my feelings, but please don't try to think that I could do the whole country because there were 8,000 village schools all over the country with no communication. That's impossible. So I said, pick out one department, one area that's a state, and let's start a pilot project. And if it works out, then other people can replicate it, replicate it, excuse me. So they picked out Valle, which was down on the south, on the Bay of Finesco, which is part of the Pacific Ocean. It had two volcanic islands off the coast that were part of it. I grew up on the ocean, and here you were on the ocean looking at mountains, and also there was some in Valle, and I thought this was just like being in two places I love all at once. USAID staff helped tell the teachers how to pick a girl, somebody who seems to be interested in wanting to learn. Then the parents have to be able to give consent, and then I would find a sponsor for this girl. Now, usually education programs that are done like this are done through grants and big funds or something, and I just carried on with the idea of it being a one-on-one, which we had done in camp. And that makes all the difference. It makes all the difference. This little girl, you can't be any lower on a totem pole than be a poor girl in Honduras and totally ignored except by loving mother and her grandmother. Here they knew somebody far away, knew who they were, and wanted to help them go to school. It didn't matter, honestly, how bad the weather was. They did their best not to disappoint this person who was helping them. Now, if that had been government funds or some some unknown foundation, they wouldn't have that kind of a commitment. I know. In 1998, they had the first international conference on the education of girls was held in Washington. Fourteen countries where it was a problem were invited to come. I was asked to come because of the Honduran Girls Project and also because of our Institute for Human Understanding. So I was asked to come and put up an exhibit and tell about the program and how we did it or something. I was amazed that all these other countries, all their funding on girls' education came from government funds or from some big foundation. And many of them came and said, oh, please come to our country and do it this way. This is the best way to do it with individual caring people. That was interesting. We started with 31 girls. They had to go to school every day they possibly could, and they had to keep their marks up into the upper 75%, and hopefully the 85% is what they hoped. So they had to work hard. They still lived at home in their village. They still went to their village school, and the village schools, the teacher could be somebody who might only have 11 years of education herself and had never been anywhere else but where she is. The way that girls are thought of is pretty sad. Girls don't need to go to school. They learn from their mother how to grind corn, wash dishes, feed babies, you know. They don't need to go to school. They learn everything they need to know from their mother. So why would you spend any money? And in order to go to school, you have to have shoes. 
you have to wear a uniform, a white blouse and a blue skirt. You have to be able to buy your pencil and the paper that you use. And if you can't do that, there's no education for you. So they're going to send their boys, but not their girls. Now, even some of the teachers used to think that boys knew more than girls because girls were so bullied that they were too shy to even answer a question in school. So the teachers interpreted that as being they didn't know the answer because they weren't as smart as boys. The other thing that was disturbing to me was that if you weren't pregnant at 14, you were worthless. So now you've got these girls, they've got to know that they have a right to decide what's going to happen in their lives. They have a right to choose the path they want to walk on, inspiring them to have a path to walk on when not a single book, there were no books. These children grew up never seeing a picture of, in a book, never having anybody sit on somebody's lap and have a story read to them. How are you going to be inspired if you don't see things to inspire you? I decided that we'd have to get little mini libraries into the schools where the girls were so they could be inspired. Scholastic had a Spanish division of books, and I made connection with them and would take books down. And the first time I took them down, I put them all on the table. We had a gathering of the girls once a year, and I'd go down for that. And the mothers the teacher, and the girls. And sometimes the mother brought the whole family because they were going to get a free meal and be fed. That was the one contact that I had with them all. They had never even seen a map, didn't even know one existed. So I blew up the map of VA, and I talked to them about where they lived and what was near it so we could find them on the map. And that was amazing to them to think they were located somewhere where you could look at a picture and say, oh, you're by a river or you're by this big rock or something. And then I met by accident a young indigenous woman from another mountain area of Honduras who had become a photographer on her own, taught herself English. Oh, my gosh, an amazing young woman. She was excited about what I was doing. So she offered to help me. And I said, well, one of my board of directors works for Kodak. I said, so I'll see if I'll get cameras. Can you teach the girls how to use them? And so she did. And they all took pictures of their family, could send to the sponsor or anything they wanted to take a picture of. And she told them how to write what it was. It was pretty exciting, pretty exciting. I couldn't have done this if there hadn't been a Peace Corps worker who was assigned to this area who had come from Vietnam as a teenager and had joined the Peace Corps. And now she was down there and her field was community development and I needed help desperately. And the Peace Corps was so excited about the project that we were doing there that they said, keep sending one because they're only there two years, you know, and and keep me supplied with help. Now, if she weren't there because she was there to stay and I was leaving, but when the books went to the school, if there was a girl in that school, then they got 10 books. But the girl and the teacher and the girl's mother would learn how to use the book and see that they were shared equally and how they were taken care of. And I had teachers who wouldn't allow the girls to touch the books. They'd lock them in a closet or something, hide them 
because they might hurt them. And I said, if they could use the book well and do things with them, then they could keep it. But if they didn't, then they would be taken away. Unfortunately, they got taken away from some of the schools. So I decided, why have the books locked up when the school isn't going on? So I bought knapsacks for all the girls, and they became the library. And they took it home. They would share them with their village friends, neighbors, even read the stories to them. We arranged for one of the gatherings. Peace Corps got some more workers to come down and help me. And we dramatized this story that was called The Magic Spyglass. And it was about a kingdom that was very poor. The king couldn't even feed a friend. And everything was falling apart. And some man, traveler, came through with a spyglass. And you'd look through it, and it would see everything the way it could be. So I had that translated into Spanish and made into little books with blank pages. So they could do the same thing in their village and imagine with a picture that they would draw. Music and the arts is just absolutely essential that they have this kind of experience. They had never drawn a picture before, so now they had to use their imagination. They had seen pictures in a book now, so they had some idea. Every girl, when the, they had the library, they had to do something with it, either make a play out of one of the books that they chose, or an art project or something. And now these are things the villagers had never seen before. They'd never watched a play. I wasn't able to be at all of them, of course, but the Peace Corps worker would tell me, she taught the girls to say to the audience, you put your finger on your mouth and you keep your mouth closed. You open your eyes and you open your ears and you watch and listen. That's how you watch a play. I think another exciting thing that happened to me, very simple, was that one of the Peace Corps workers took a picture of one of the girls who had done a project where it was about your home and about your house. It was her favorite book. So students and schools here in Vermont had donated crayons and paper for me to take down, which they would then choose a little package and take it back to their school. Now, can you imagine, here is the lowest one on the total pole bringing to school all these wonderful gifts. Because of them, they had a little library. Because of them, they had seen a play or sung a song that they didn't know and drawn pictures. The project was that all of the kids in school had to draw a picture of their house, my home or something, you know. The Peace Corps worker took a picture of the little girl with the students standing beside her who are showing their pictures, some of them. And amazing to me, I couldn't tell the boys from the girls. The boys weren't teasing the girls anymore. They weren't bullying them. That was a big step. The other big step was these mothers that would come to the gatherings to make them feel like they could do something because they had never seen a book before and they were very embarrassed that they wouldn't know how to read or anything. I had them cover all the books with laminate and showed them how to do it so they would last a little longer so they were all paperback. They were so happy to think that they could learn to cover this book with laminate and their faces just beaming you know, and sharing that with each other. It was exciting. 
Now, I don't think any of these mothers had friends. They were so busy hauling water, grinding corn, taking care of babies. The highest population under 20 in the North and South Hemisphere was in Honduras. When the mothers now are coming together and they're learning things too, I mean, even doing that map, they were participating in it and listening to the girls read a story and they were participating in that being the audience. To see a man and a father there once in a while was pretty exciting to me. And the ones whose fathers were really in back of this education of their daughters, the daughters really went far with their education. They had said if they could only get the girl through the ninth grade. And in my heart, I couldn't just think of that. I wanted to build leadership. I wanted their country to see what girls were capable of doing if anything else, to help her bring about world peace. When women are leading major roles in the country, they're not going to allow their children to be killed on a battlefield. We won't have war anymore. It almost brings tears to my eyes to think about it when I thought how terrible I felt when I saw those pictures and found out what war was. The mothers now, they had friends, these other mothers, and what they had in common was their girls were being educated. What they were doing was incredible to me. They'd write little letters. It'd be a whole year. I'd be down there and I'd get them and bring them back, get them translated, and then get them off to the sponsor. It was quite a project to try to get the communication going. But I started a little newsletter that was called the Veil, which means spread your wings and fly. One of them has graduated as a doctor and surgeon. Another one is an educational psychologist. Another one is a lawyer. Another one that has just finished graduating maybe two years ago now, she, or a year ago. She was working and trying to go to school at the same time. All the things she learned she'd bring back to the little local school where she had a child going to school, and she shared it with the villagers and everything, maps and brochures about historic places and the history that people didn't even know. She so inspired that community. It was a grade one through six when I knew her, and there were 46 students in it when she was there. It is now K through nine with over 255 students. And there is a majority of seven girls over boys. <laughs> but they didn't have any books, no books. Nobody in the village even saw printed words. That was just, yeah. so now we're building a library and raising money to build this library, which will be for the whole town. Three shipments of books have already gone down because of the Baha'is, thank you. They made it safe to get them down there through the National Spiritual Assembly of Honduras. Right now, Honduras is known to be one of the most dangerous countries in the world. The country totally ignored this part of the country, this state of Valle. It's called a department. There was a tourist guide that I saw, and it even said, if you're unfortunate enough to find yourself in Valle, how would you like to hear that read about where you live? Mm -hmm. I remember that when we went to live in Vermont. We had a nice home. We had jobs, family and everything back in Massachusetts. 
and busy lives and doing projects and things and then drop it all and go off to Vermont in the middle of the woods with a house falling down and start with nothing in the mountains. And people would say, what the heck? Are you crazy going up there to be a hick? Now, if you ask anybody about Vermont, it's a glorious place to go. So I used to tell the girls that story. You're going to make Valle that kind of a place. They want to. None of them have ever asked me to help them come to the United States. None of them. They love their country. They have something else that we lack terribly, and that's intergenerational love. You'd see a grandmother and the granddaughter walking hand in hand, happy like two kids. Something wonderful is happening way off, which will make an impression on the whole country, I'm sure, with time. Well, I want to thank you, Carolyn, for telling us all about the good work that you're doing, not only with your start of High Rise, but also the wonderful work you did in Honduras to make the world a better place. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Carolyn Cruikshank, who, through the Institute of Human Understanding that she and her husband Don established, created a project for the education and upliftment of young girls in Honduras. You can find this interview and other interviews on the website abahaiperspective.com and on the YouTube channel Perspective. You can also find the podcast on Spotify and iTunes. For information specifically on the Baha'i Faith, you can go to the website baha'i.org or you can call the number 1-800-22UNITE. I hope you join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. Thank you.